Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verses 7 through 9. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shear is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. The New Testament reading is from the book of John, chapter 19, verses 1 through 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold, the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Jesus answered him, or the Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Um, you've, heard, you've heard me talk a lot this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Jerry Ornelas. It's, I'm glad you're here. We have a wonderful text this morning. It's wonderful in the sense that it points us directly to a very, very, very important aspect of the cross. As we edge closer and closer to the cross, we see remnants of the gospel here. So with that being said, let me open up in prayer. Ask God's blessing. Father, we come to you only in the name of Jesus, the one who stood before Pilate, 
ultimately on our behalf. And Father, we ask that you by your spirit come down and do a work in our hearts. Do that quiet yet powerful work in our hearts, turning us from sin and towards you and righteousness. Open our eyes, O oh Lord, in Christ's name, amen. So if you don't know me, I am from Savannah, Georgia, and um, Savannah, it's a little, little older than New Haven. Um, so I have context for Savannah. I could use New Haven in this example, but I'll use Savannah. Savannah, Georgia, that is. So if, if you wanted to take a tour of Savannah, Georgia, and you wanted to see all the significant revolutionary and Civil War monuments and everything that's there, you could park your car downtown and begin working your way through the various parks, cemeteries, churches, and museums. And I would suggest it, if you, by the way. But unless you're familiar with Savannah's layout and well-versed in the particulars of Savannah's history, and involvement in both wars, you would do well to find yourself a tour guide, or else you'll end up on the opposite side of town, not knowing where you're at. Because tour guides, they'll provide you with a framework for understanding what you will see along the way. Tour guides help bring order and make sense of all the details. And I believe John, this chapter here in 19, verses one through 16, does that for us. It functions somewhat like a tour guide, if I can Say it that way, helping us see the significance of what follows in the chapter. As I said, we, we are drawing near to the cross, and John has been very prudent with his version of the story. He omits much of the kind of empathy for Jesus we see in the other gospels accounts, the empathy that we see from Pilate. John doesn't want to distract us from what is central, and that is his mission. And it's this, it's to save the world. And John wants us to see that in our text. And nothing's going to thwart him from that. So the point is this. Christ's suffering is precisely this. A confrontation between two worlds. It is, a, it is at once a spectacle of Rome's author, brutal authority and a counter-spectacle of God's love. Let me say that again. Christ's suffering is precisely a confrontation between two worlds. It is at once a spectacle of Rome's brutal authority and a counter-spectacle of love. And this is what our text prepares us to see, specifically in verses 9 through 11. This really strange interaction between Pilate and Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's the only thing we see Jesus say in this text. It's the only thing we see him say in this text. Let me read it real quick to you. Pilate, he entered the headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me to, over to you has a greater sin. So what's so significant about that exchange? Before that, we have to grasp something of the significance and to understand the symbol of crucifixion and what's being threatened here in the Roman Empire in Christ's day. So first, Christ's suffering is a spectacle of Rome's authority. So in 1857, ancient artifact that was un un uncovered. If you ever heard of it, the Aleximenos Graffito. And it was a picture basically of a man being crucified on the cross with the head of a donkey. 
It was a caricature. It was meant to mock the idea of worshiping a crucified criminal. Because off to the side in that picture, there was a man apparently worshiping this hideous looking figure. And who is Alexa Manos? We don't know. But it's meant to display the artwork, how stupid whoever this individual is to be worshiping a criminal. How silly it is to worship a man battered and beat and stripped naked all before the public eye. The public opinion was settled on whoever was crucified. Whatever you see here, this person is worthless. You see, the crucifixion and what we see here in this flogging isn't simply a way of executing or disciplining criminals. It was a statement of power. They were instruments of humiliation and dehumanization, meant to eviscerate every ounce of human dignity. As it broadcast the message to the masses, Rome is our powerful, the victim is nothing. So John wants us to see Christ humiliated, and we see that right from the start, right there in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, it's a bit strange that Pilate would treat Jesus this way because back in chapter 18 and once here, what do we see? Pilate tells the Jewish leaders that he can find no reason to charge him. Absolutely no reason to charge him. So it's a strange thing that Pilate will then turn around and say, okay, let's, I think he's innocent, but I'm going to beat up the bloody mess out of him. Now, some take this as, as Pilate vacillating between two opinions between doing the, 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 the honorable thing and doing the wrong thing. I'm not sure that's, that's the case. I'm sure you can make an argument, but I think it's merely Pilate doesn't care about the humanity of Jesus whatsoever. Remember, Rome is everything. This was a mere power play as an attempt to appease the masses with Jesus as the pawn. So he takes Jesus out to be flogged. And this flogging was referred as the pre-death death. It was a horrible and brutal experience. The individual was taken and their hands were tied behind their backs. They were bent over, attached to a pole in view of the public eye. Remember, this is a public act here. And the torturers would take whips, which had little pieces of lead, brass, or bone, and would whip the individual. And in many instances, the person being flogged wouldn't make it to the next stage because they would die. Now, brace yourself, it gets worse. Historians tell us that the level of torture was so bad that sometimes deep-seated veins and organs would be exposed all to the public eye. There's something terribly wrong with this scene. Not only because we see a human being being filleted, but no one present bats an eye. No one bats an eye. No one speaks up and says, stop the madness. No one, and we, and, 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 and we got a picture of that in Peter. Peter had the opportunity to stand for Jesus, but he doesn't. He stands before the public, as Isaiah says, and many were astonished at you. His appearance was so far beyond human resemblance. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. And who was despised and we esteemed him not. With every snap of the whip on his flesh, the crowds can hear the cries and groans of his pain. You can imagine people wincing in horror at it. 
turning their eyes away from their brutality. But no one speaks up for Christ. Even if some among the crowds wanted to, the sheer magnitude of Rome's power and the violent unity of the high priest and his followers rendered any empathetic person incapable of demonstrating a single ounce of bravery in the moment. No one dared associate themselves with Christ. He's alone. It's humiliating. What logical person would look at this horrid figure and see anything worthy of dignity, yet alone worship? Not only was he humiliated, but Christ was also dehumanized. We see that in verses 2 through 4. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. And they came to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him in the face. You see, it wasn't enough for the soldiers to abuse Christ's body. They now had to abuse his reputation. The cruelty of verse 1 is matched by the mockery that follows in verses 2 through 4. This is a mock coronation. They're absolutely mocking him. With the soldiers weaving together this crown of thorns and crushing it on his head, then taking the purple robe and dressing him, and then mocking him, coming up to him over and over again, hell king of the Jews, and then smacking him in the face. For what? For what? For healing the sick, curing the blind, feeding the hungry, healing the Roman centurion's dying son. On the basis of what did they punch him in the face and dehumanize him in this way? And we have to see what John is doing here. He's been juxtaposing us two things all throughout the Gospels. That Jesus is the Son of God from whom all things were made. Nothing was made apart from him. We have that and then we have this picture of a bloody mess. A person who encased himself in human flesh for the salvation of the world now being ripped to shreds. We're meant to see the horror of this. Now, John doesn't go into grand details here, obviously, but I'm not adding anything to the text. No more than the first century people who read this would have known and seen with their own eyes and what the other gospels portray. This is a horrid scene here. Let's not miss that. So Pilate once again comes out to the crowd and says in verse 4, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and you can imagine him limping along the way. And Pilate said to them, and you can almost hear it in a mockish tone, Behold the man. Behold the man. So I want you to get a sense of the absurdity of what's going on here. The total injustice. Pilate has just said, I find this man innocent. Why would you beat an innocent person? Jesus here is being treated as a plaything, an absolute plaything. The Romans care nothing about Christ, and the Jews want Christ to be annihilated. And Christ is caught right there in the crucible of Rome's power and the Jewish leader's hatred.
And we got a taste of this throughout the, the two false trials. The one before Caiaphas and now before Pilate. One is secretive and vindictive. The other is senseless and crass. Human justice in its religious and secular form have been completely, they have completely allied themselves against Jesus for no other reason than malice and hatred. In a phrase, Jesus came as a gift of God to the world, but here we see the world and its institutions and religion against Jesus. For what reason does Pilate find to subject him to this much torture? And presumably he's saying when he says, behold the man, look, do you really think that this person is a king? You fear this person is going to cause an insurrection? This man right here? This pathetic human being? Behold the man, he says. This is the man. The irony here, this as, as Pilate says, this is the man, he's saying more than he realizes. Because Isaiah says that this man was also an oppressed and he was afflicted. And he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before it shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. Are you beginning to grasp something of the significance of this text? Remember, this is our tour guide taking us from one monument of the story to another. Jesus standing before Pilate in the sheer magnitude of Roman power is no mere accident on the historical scene. There's something else brewing. It's as though Christ is intentionally going down this road towards the cross. At any point, he could have fought for himself. He could have made a case for his innocence. I mean, what, what, what righteous man standing before such cruel injustice would stand there and say nothing? Would not, would you? Wouldn't you say you're wrong about me? Wouldn't you say the whole system's corrupt? How dare you claim to be just? We get none of that. He could have turned to the Jewish leaders and scolded them for their injustice, but he doesn't. He could have rebuked the crowds as he cried out, crucify him, crucify him, but he doesn't. He's silent. He could have scoffed at the Jews' misuse and mis misunderstanding of God's law when they said, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he, was made, he has made himself the son of God. Here's the irony. They're right. But they're wrong because he is the son of God. And because of that, he came to die for them. That's the sweet irony here. And no one gets it but Jesus. Notice the hypocrisy of the Jews. Their interpretation of the law was driven not by their fidelity, but by their fury. Malice and jealousy were the lens to which they read their scriptures. I've mentioned this before, the Latin phrase, incravatus and say, which means to be curved in on oneself. They couldn't see past their own rage. At every turn, they felt justified in their actions. And I've said this before, our Martin Luther quote, sin is never satisfied with just being sin. It wants to be righteous. And the Jews here want to be righteous. So what do they do? They mask it, their rage and religion and allegiance to Rome. So Pilate, when Pilate seeks to release Jesus, they say, the Jews, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. 
Then when Pilate roused at the crowd in a mockish tone, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Pilate now thinks he has the Jewish leaders in their grips, even while the Jewish leaders feel they have Pilate in theirs. Not only do we see hypocrisy, we also see apostasy. And that's usually where unchecked hypocrisy leads. They say, we have no king but Caesar. It's paramount to saying Caesar is Lord. Even the Jews would know that that would be heretical. The Lord, the Lord our God is one, says the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. And here they say, no, we have no other Lord but Caesar. Apostasy. And there's something terribly wrong with religion when its degree of fidelity depends solely on outside pressures and cultural influences. Now, I'm, I'm sympathetic to social justice. I am. But I'm, here's where I'm leery. Not with the acts of justice in society or the, or the, the, the drive, the desire to see justice in society for all people. But I am leery with anyone who justifies their hatred and malice towards another while claiming that they are standing for injustice. When justice is no longer about mending wrongs and promoting righteousness, but turns into a tool to squash, ostracize, hate, anyone it deems worthy of such actions, it is no longer justice. You have become the very thing you fight against. And you don't even see it. And the Jewish leaders didn't see it. We saw in chapter 18 how when they were bringing Jesus to Pilate, they wouldn't go into the governor's place. Why? Because they didn't want to defile themselves. But what do we see here in our chapter? Utter defilement. They're lying. They've apostatized. They're hypocritical. And they don't even see that they've become the very thing that they wish not to be all under the guise of, of, of their version of justice. But the power and the brutality of Rome and the vindictiveness of Israel isn't the only thing on display here. As a matter of fact, they are, the, they are merely the shadowy backdrop of God's love. So we've seen Christ's suffering as a spectacle of Rome's authority. Now, let's get back to our initial question as we look at Christ's suffering as a spectacle of God's love. So what's the significance of the exchange in verses 9 through 11? How is Christ suffering a counterspectacle of God's love? And then we'll take a look at what this means for us. Again, let me read verses 9 through 11. Pilate entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. Pilate's enraged at Christ's silence. I mean, how dare that this person that looks like a bloody pope would say nothing to him upon being asked. Roman governors aren't used to being ignored when they demand an answer. Jesus does not answer him. Jesus is clearly the defeated person ignoring a ruler. 
So what does Pilate say? Look at it. Look at the logic here. He says that, don't you know that I have authority to release you and to crucify you? What's he saying? He's claiming that whatever has just happened to Jesus and whatever happens next rests entirely in his being. And the pronouns are emphatic, almost as if Pilate is both shocked and annoyed at Jesus, his silence. Don't you know that I have authority? And Christ's response to this is quite amazing. He says, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. What's, what's he saying? Jesus is responding directly to Pilate's claim that he has authority to release and to crucify. He isn't just talking about Pilate's authority in general. So that's there. But the, his specific authority in this moment to release or crucify. And Jesus doesn't say, you don't have that, that authority. Did, did you notice that? He doesn't say, no, you don't have it. He says, you do have the authority to crucify me. But only because that authority was given to you from above. Now, pause. Is that what you expected? Did you expect God to give this brutal Roman governor in a brutal Roman system the authority to crucify his son? Is that the answer you expected from Christ? Because it shouldn't be. But that's what's given. There's a profound irony here. Pilate is not a deterrent to God's plan. He's a mere chauffeur of his plan to display love to the world. Let me say that another way. Christ's suffering at the hands of Pilate at one of the darkest moments of his life was not a deterrent to God's plan. It was part and parcel of it. John 10, 17, Christ says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and they will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life for, I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father. And that's amazing. That here, Jesus here looks like a weak lamb, this pathetic figure, in it the whole time. The, the irony here, the whole time, this is how Christ is wielding his authority upon the universe. This is how he's flexing his muscles. It's incredible. His suffering at the hands of the Romans was ultimately a symbol of a man dying for his friends. And that answers another question lurking behind this bloody scene. How is this love? How is this love? Isn't this illogical? Well, I'll say this. It is God's inappropriate answer to your most urgent need. I say inappropriate because it's not one we, it's not one we would naturally accept. This is something I've mentioned before, but a Jewish man once was asked, sir, why aren't you a Christian? And he responded, because I don't believe it possible that someone else could die for my sins or suffer for my sins. Is that you? Does that idea seem utterly illogical? 
Here you have Christ being beaten and battered and yet the whole testimony of scripture and from the mouth of Jesus says this was all done for you? Does that seem utterly ridiculous? Well, it shouldn't. You see, the scene before Pilate, this barbaric scene, it's meant to dramatize the ugliness of sin. So what do you see when you look at Jesus battered and bruised? What do you see? Do you just see a loser? A pathetic individual? Do you see somebody who is a fool? Do you see him as a savior? Do you merely see him as a victim? That's it? He's a victim of, of, un, of injustice? Or maybe you think this version of Christianity is just utterly insane and weak. Why wouldn't you fight? Fight, take up arms, defend. Well, part of the answer is that while he was suffering as a man, he was no mere man. He was the son of God. But the second part is a special relationship between Christ and humanity. And it's encapsulated all through in various ways in John and in our text that we read in, in Isaiah. Wrapped up in this preposition with us and, and for us. And we see that. When, when we see suffering here, with, with, when we see Christ suffering here, we're seeing Christ suffering with us. He's not aloof to injustice. He's not. He's not aloof to how barbaric and nasty this world can be and how evil and insane this world can be. As a matter of fact, he's in its vice grips right now. That's why it says he knows our grief and this transforms our suffering. And how so? Well, one, you know now that you have one who suffered like you. Not only that, he, he was betrayed. He experienced oppression at the hands of unjust, injustice and unjust leaders. You have a savior who had no one come to rescue him when he needed it most. The whole world was against him. And here's the thing, other thing. He experienced the silence of God. The utter silence of God. From those watching Christ suffer, they would look at him and they would conclude that God is not with him because he claimed that God was his father and his father is doing nothing to stop the madness. Jesus knows the silence of God in his suffering. But here's where Christ and us differ significantly. Yes, he was a man of sorrows and yes, he was acquainted with our grief. But he had no point, at no point needed to grieve for his own sins. Sin had no foothold in his heart. That is why Christ with us is not enough alone. That alone would make Christ a great inspiration. But it wouldn't deal with our sin. Our greatest problem is not our fickleness as humans or our inability to stem the tide of justice. Our greatest problem is our sin and guilt before God. We therefore need Christ for us. And this is where we get our answer to our question. How is Christ suffering a display of God's love? 
Let me end here with an illustration. Let's say I'm walking down Whitney here with my wife, and she's, she's pregnant, and we're holding hands, and I say, Michelle, I love you, and I'm going to prove it to you. And I jump out in front of a bus. Would she say, my husband is loving. Oh, how deep Jerry's love is for me. No. That's insanity. That's not what's happening here. Jesus isn't just jumping into, in front of a bus saying, look, I died. Therefore, it's love. Now, let's say, let's, let's say this happened. Let's say I see my wife in the middle of Whitney. I see a bus coming and I run out there, push her out the way and take the full impact of the bus. Would that be love? Yes, it would be love. I'm giving up my life so that she can have it and live. I'm giving up my peace, my well-being, so that she can be whole. I'm ex- There's this great exchange going on. I didn't have to die, but I did because of her. I did this for her. That's what's going on in the cross. So when we see Pilate before Jesus, one of the reasons why we can look at Jesus and say this was for us is because in a real way, if Christ was for us, the person standing for Pilate is not just Jesus, it's Jeremiah or Nellis. That's who's standing before Pilate right now. And that's the logic of the gospel, is that Christ in our place for our sins so that we can be in Christ and have his righteousness. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.